gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. How you doing, Mandy? I'm good. I'm good. good. So, can't believe they let, let the two of us uh, take over the uh, podcast for a night. Well, when you, you have the keys to the secret lab, anything's possible. Yeah. I think the uh, most important thing, or most exci- interesting thing going on right now is, you know, all, all the things going on with healthcare. So. Absolutely. In fact, I can, I can speak to that personally, having gone through some things very recently. In fact, I've got the bill sitting right in front of me, so I'd love to talk about healthcare and the cost of it. All right. Why don't you Why don't you start off with your uh, your story about your bill? Well, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I work for a an organization that has you know very good benefits. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. And it's interesting. And, and because I sit in the budget meetings, I see what salaries are. I see what compensation packages are. And over time, be able to keep the same level of benefits, especially ever since the Obamacare implementation. I mean, we've seen our premiums skyrocket in an effort to keep the cost reasonable for the employees, because it's a benefit to us. You know, our deductibles and everything have gone up substantially. And, you know, it, it went from being a $250 deductible to now where it's $2,500 deductible for any services and everything else that goes through. So it's a real eye-opener. And like I said, it, it's interesting listening to the conversations going on today about, you know, what, what the overall cost of healthcare is. It, it's steep. And it, what's, what, what always kind of, honestly, frosted me is the way that cross-structure is set up. Because a little anecdotal story Years ago, my wife, you know, when we had our son, had to have a C-section. And she was in the hospital for five days, you know, surgery, everything else. It was a $30,000 procedure, but the insurance was done negotiating. It was down to $10,000. Flash forward to two years later, she has relatives in from Italy who are here for their honeymoon. And the day before he goes to get on the airplane, he has an appendicitis. And because there's no insurance, it's $20,000. There's no negotiation. And I'm just, I'm just curious, obviously, for someone who's involved in the healthcare industry, why those rates are, are such that if somebody has insurance, if it's negotiated down and you're willing to settle for the $10,000, but someone without insurance has to pay that $20,000. Right. So what happens is that there is a, first of all, Medicare, Medicaid decide what they're going to pay for a procedure. And then the insurance companies will pay more than that. But what happens is with individual systems, the insurance companies will negotiate and say, I will pay X amount of dollars for such and such procedures. So for example, here in New Atlantis, we have an Ivory Tower Academic Medical Center and we have a Sisters of Mercy run hospital. And if you are going to get a cardiac MRI, there is a about a 25% premium on doing it at the Ivory Tower Academic Medical Center. And that's because that medical center is able to negotiate with a specific insurance. Now, what else is going on is that hospitals are aligning with specific insurance companies so that they're a preferred provider. So where I work, Aetna, is not only the provider of insurance for all the employees, they have a preferred deal with the companies. So if you have Aetna insurance, the insurance, the, the cost of a procedure, the price of a procedure, not the cost, the price, will be lower. 
than if you had a different insurer, say Blue Cross Blue Shield. And, and, and it's all about negotiations. And every few years, these negotiations change. Some insurance plans are not accepted by some hospitals. Now, the thing is, Mandy, you and I have group coverage. And we have an even better gig than a lot of the people out there having to deal with the Obamacare exchanges and individual coverage. Because that whole market, that whole sector is a complete train wreck right now, that insurance sector. Because that sector is collapsing. And the reason is because people... The people who have insurance are sick, and the people who don't have insurance aren't buying insurance. I mean, the people who are not sick are not buying insurance. So because, because of that, the amount of money coming in far, is far less than the money going out to, to the uh, hospitals, things like that. Now, with group coverage, you have a very healthy Mandy, and you may have you know, Dr. J, who has a daughter with Crohn's disease. And so while Dr. J's outlays are... You know, the amount of money that he is incurring for the insurance company, maybe, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars over a given year, maybe even more. You know, Mandy's, you know, paying in more than he's putting out. Sure. So and that's sort of that model, but the group model works because you have an entire captive audience of some healthy, some not so healthy people in that pool, just by the fact that they all work in the same location, safety in numbers. And there's not a way other than saying it's the right thing to do for everybody to have health insurance. And where we get into trouble is that the same people who want us to buy the health insurance want to put in all of these goodies, free wellness visits, free birth control, free, I don't even know what the hell else is free that they're putting in there because it's not free. But what ends up happening is all of those freebies make the people who buy them feel entitled to them. And also they gum up the, the dynamic and the workflow. Dr. J is healthy. So Dr. J sees his internist maybe once every three years, but all these people going for these free wellness visits make it such that a diabetic who needs to see her every three months can't get in to see you know, the internist every three months. And let me tell you, some of my, some of my liberal academic colleagues who are primary care doctors, the hand-wringing, saving the world types, will whisper in my ear that they do not like the annual wellness visits for the young and healthies. And the reason is, is that there's no data to support that an annual visit for a 30-year-old healthy individual is going to improve outcomes. Maybe once every three years, maybe once every five years, but every year, that's a bit much. So I get you. So it's interesting you say that because, again, I'm at that age where you know, I, I do see my physician every year. Now, in full disclosure, my physician is also my roommate from college, so I can get in there and I want to see him. But one of the things that I've seen in his office, and I haven't done it because, again, through friendship, I don't have to do this per se to get in. What we're seeing his, him doing, and I'm seeing a lot of other things. In fact, I heard uh, talking today on a radio show when I was driving in from work. That more of a concierge type medicine, mostly more of a, the these clinics are being set up where they don't take insurance per se, but you pay almost like a fee to join a club, and they're seeing you now. You know, basically, you're paying fifty dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month to be able to have this access to healthcare. Now, obviously, any test you need or anything above and beyond, you know, you have to pay for out of pocket. But they like it because the, you know, from what we're hearing is they don't have to deal with the insurance companies. They can do these tests. They can do what they want to do and treat you as an individual and not locked in, you know, and I, you know, again, it sounds, it's, I think it's good for them. And I think it's good if you can afford it. And that's, I think I'm leading up to a point here. 
one of the things that bothers me is everybody keeps saying, especially now with this debate going on, is, oh, my God, if, if Republicans pass this, you're going to lose your health care. Now, let's be realistic. Whether I'm, you know, the CEO of Amazon or I'm, you know, a single mother of six kids, I get into a car accident, they bring me in the emergency room. The emergency room is going to take care of me. Nobody's going to say, well, you don't have insurance, we're going to leave to die in the hall. You know, you're going to get that treatment. You know, I think it's a question more of not denial of health care, it's what do you pay for? And again, there comes a point where you're responsible for yourself. There are certain sacrifices you may need to make. You know, we talk about the poor in the country. Well, most of the poor in this country have two flat screen TVs and a, and a car. You know, how poor are you when you're sporting an iPhone and everything else? I think people need to prioritize what they're really looking for as far as, do I want that iPhone or do I want to pay for health care? And like you said, if I'm 30 and I'm healthy, I think I'm invincible. And I, I am because, you know, I've got the weaponry to, to back it up. But, you know, it, it's, it's a unique thing where, it, again, it, it sounds, people, you know, it sounds chaos. People say, well, you've got insurance. Well, you, what do you care? Well, you know, I can, if I lose my job tomorrow, I don't have insurance. You know, as far as my employer paying for it, I'd have to go on COBRA. I'd have to make up the difference. But again, those programs aren't there as a substitute for long-term care. Those things, just like unemployment insurance, isn't there to cover you for the next four or five years you lose your job. It's there as a safety net for a couple months so you get back on your feet. And I think that's where people are starting to get, like you said, entitled. They think they're entitled as healthcare. You know, I, I know that what my employer provides me is a benefit. You know, whether they give me this health care or they say, you know what, we're not going to give you health care, we're just going to give you an extra, you know, $4,000, $6,000, $8,000 a year. You, now you buy it on your own. You know, and I understand, like you said, there's that group dynamic, that group pool that we pull our money together. Like you said, you're sick, I'm not, but we're both paying the same amount in so we can cover those costs. And, you know, I, I know in talking to the czar, he, he would rather just have individual, you know, health care not be tied to the group policy. He'd rather have his own portable health care. But again, there's a fine line is where do we draw the line? And like I said, this, as far as we can't buy insurance across state lines, there's no competition. Those are the things that I think that cause the insurance rates to go up like anything. If I, if I can only buy a certain product at this store, what's that store's incentive to drop the price of that product? It's the same thing with insurance. Now, I understand that, you know, when someone does come into the emergency room with no insurance, the hospital's got two, you know, they're going to have to treat that person. And it could be a, you know, a $30,000 emergency room visit. Who pays for that? Does, it, does the hospital write that off? You know, do they just take it from the general fund and charge you a little bit more for your time? Well, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I mean, how does that affect the, the, the overall hospital's bottom line? Yeah, well, there's a big saying that we always have at the uh, Ivory Tower Medical Center, and that's no, no margin, no mission. Now, uh, back when, you know, some of my... Um, August senior faculty members were in private practice in the 1980s. They were getting paid $120 to read an EKG. They were getting paid $1,000 to read NECA, making money hand over fist. But that what making that money hand over fist, both them and the hospital allowed them to do, was when someone couldn't pay, they would just say, hey, thank you for the rhubarb pie. And they got paid by somebody in rhubarb pie. No one cared. Everyone, and the reason is because they were able to, you know, give that 10th latte for free mm -hmm. because so much money on the, on the other nine lattes. Um, but with the HMOs, with the amount of regulation, the amount of, you know, having the amount of reimbursement go down, 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 and then the amount of regulation go up, 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 where we have a six-figure salary administrator, you know, for every day of the week. 
and we have all this paperwork we have to fill out and all this stuff, you know, adds up to having a very narrow margin. In mm -hmm. fact, you know, we have, um, what we do is we calculate, okay, what is our payer mix? What percentage are Medicare? What percentage are Medicaid? What percentage are commercial insurance? What percentage are uninsured? And every, every year, the Medicare population goes up 2%. The commercial population goes down 2% because we have an aging population. And that makes those margins even tighter. And so when that happens, you're not doing as much charity care. But I will say, with the example of the emergency department, um, I'd spent 10 weeks doing trauma surgery and another month doing emergency medicine in medical school and almost ended up becoming a trauma surgeon. And one of the things is, is that we had patients had no way of paying. And, you know, we would send them a bill for $100,000, $200,000 for a month and a half long stay in the trauma unit. And some of those families send a check, $20 every month without fail. 10 years later, 15 years later, they're still sending a check for $20. The Ivory Tower Medical Center doesn't come after them. Um, you know, they're not sending their, they're sending their um, bill to a credit company or to a, um, one of those mercenaries uh, like the czar to come after them. And because, uh, you know, he would. Uh, but what they do is they're just saying, this guy's doing what he can and we're just going to not lose sleep over it. And that's how they write that off. But, you know, it's harder for people to do that as, you know, the reimbursements have gone down and the overhead's gone up. And now they're trying to figure out a way to pay us not to work where we have these things called bundle payments. So if, you know, we were going to do a valve replacement, we get paid for the valve $150,000. And that's, you know, the pre-op evaluation, that's the surgery, that's the follow-up visit, that's any estimated readmissions to the hospital for an infection, for whatever. It's for the, you know, three months following that, 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 that um, valve replacement, you know, we're giving you 150000 and you can't bill us for anything else related to it. I mean, you know, if the guy stubs his toe, if the guy gets cancer, that'll get taken care of by his insurance. But anything related to that valve, all bets are off for those first three months after we get that check. So trying to figure out a way to get that valve in under $150,000 every time is pretty tricky. And it makes for some perverse incentives sometimes if someone isn't scrupulous. We are scrupulous, but if they weren't, it's very tempting to say, yeah, let's try to do outpatient antibiotics and not bring that guy into the hospital. Let's make him observation for 24 hours and see if we can get him turned around so he doesn't get counted as a full admit. And those are the games people end up playing because of all these shenanigans. No, I get that. And, you know, that brings up an interesting point is at what point – you know, obviously you're ethical and you guys are, are looking out for your patients, but at what point, you know, if this becomes more and more burdensome and like I said, the more regulation comes in and insurance companies start squeezing you that, you know, that, uh, that healthcare almost becomes worthless in a sense that, yeah, I've got insurance, but I can't use it. Nobody's going to pay for what I need to have done. And the doctors are, are, are and the hospitals are adverse to perform these procedures because they're not going to be reimbursed. So like you said, they send you home with an antibiotic and hope for the best. I mean, at what point does that, that equilibrium happen or, or, or something stop that from sliding any further? I think what stops that is that it's very clear what to do. Um, in, in a lot of our situations, there isn't so much a lot of that patching as we go rather than doing something more definitive. I mean, it's very, there, a lot of what we do is very clear. Yeah, you need to do X. Yes, you need to do Y. And so that kind of helps us to do our job. And really, when you look at um, rational economic models in businesses, Doctors are the worst. 
we are not rational economic models because we insufferably do the right thing and get yelled at by administrators potentially, but we'll do the right thing. Um, we had no, when I was a resident and I was a fellow, we had no floor beds at our VA hospital. We just had intensive care unit beds. And our sister hospital, which is sort of a smaller referral hospital 40 miles down the road, they had regular beds. And I had a patient from, from, the, from, the, from the city the, my hospital is in, and the administrator came and said, you know, this patient shouldn't be in the intensive care unit. This patient should be on the floor. And I'm like, I know, but we have no floor beds. And they said, well, you need to transfer them to a floor bed. And we're one hospital with two campuses. So what we did was we just said, listen, you know, the patient lives three miles from this hospital. We are not moving him <laughs> because it would be just wrong to move this guy 40 miles down the road to, you know, to a regular bed. You know, I mean, it would not right for his family. It's not right for him. And we got into a big thing with the chief of staff. This was like 15 years ago, but it was one of those situations where it's like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't care what the rational thing is. I'm trying to do right by the family. Oh, I get you. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I'm, I'm probably playing almost the moderator role in this, but I mean, as far as you know, times have changed medically right now where my wife's mother is going through a bout of, you know, breast cancer and lung cancer, that's hormonal based, luckily. Right? Not that any cancer is good, but she's qualified because of her age. They basically tell us chemotherapy would just be too rough on her. The first dosage that they would have to give her based on the size of the tumor and it's stage four and everything else would, if, you know, didn't put her in a hospital, immediately would just wind up, you know, eventually killing her. Anything that to reduce the dosage wouldn't be effective. So she luckily qualified for an experimental trial that they're going through. It's a hormonal based, you know, medicine. Yeah. And the guy, the doctors told us, he said, you know, the results we've been having with this, this medication is within two weeks, the tumors are almost gone. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating how things have changed. And as far as, you know, the technology, I mean, even my surgery my wife just had, I mean, she had a cyst removed from her ovary that was eight centimeters. It was gigantic. And, you know, it was four small incisions and, you know, laparoscopically done as opposed to having to have a full, you know, surgical procedure where they open, you know, abdominal wall and everything else. Are any of those types of things ever going to bring the cost down? Or is it just the cost really stay the same because you're paying for the development cost? And I mean, what, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so innovation, um, you know, is going to be expensive initially. Anything, any new technology is going to be expensive. Any new, um, any new therapy is going to be expensive. But the thing is, is that over time, the cost of that comes down because one, it's going to be used more. And two, the, the patents will expire for, for drugs. So when the, pat when the, drugs when the drug patents expire, a lot of the prices will drop to some degree or another. Um, but also, different drugs have different costs. And the two things that get built into the cost of a drug is the prevalence of the disease. So antihypertensives are going to be cheap by necessity because you got to compete in a market where you're paying $4 for lisinopril. So no matter how expensive the newest antihypertensive is, it's still going to be $30 a month in Tier 3 So in order to even just be on the table. Uh, but now with cancer, uh, you know, the new therapies come in basically two flavors. One are biologics. So those are antibody drugs. Uh, those are more expensive. They're easy to develop 
because it's easy to make an antibody to something. And then once you make an antibody to something, you can test to see if it's effective or not, either to activate a receptor or to shut down a receptor. Um, and as we're understanding the signaling of cancers, we're getting better at saying, aha, I want to target that molecule. And then they go after it with an antibody. With, high, with uh, medicinal chemistry and high throughput screening, we're also able to develop small molecules for some, for some, uh, from, for some diseases. And those small molecule drugs, those are like, you know, when you take a pill, uh, you swallow it, your body absorbs it, it, go, it gets distributed everywhere. Um, and those are targeting intracellular targets. And then the third group of drugs, actually, this is something I think is really cool, is a series of biological injectable drugs, but they're not antibodies. What they are is antisense RNA. So every cell has a nucleus. That nucleus is the cookbook for every protein in your body. Um, cancer cells, just like any other cell, make a certain set of proteins. So think of it as, you know, a Chinese restaurant makes Chinese food, but they use the same cookbook that has all the recipes as the Italian restaurant. And so, um, and so what they do is they target a specific, so, you know, so what happens is you have your DNA gets transcribed to RNA, and then the RNA gets fed through a machine called the ribosome, which makes the protein. So what we're doing is we're injecting antisense RNA because RNA is one-stranded and it binds it up and locks it up before it can make the protein, as opposed to waiting for the protein to get made and then targeting it. Uh, so we have a drug like that in um, high cholesterol. It's called mepomersin. Um, there is a new one for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that's in development. Uh, blocks a protein called SMAD7 from being made. It's an anti-inflammatory. And they're doing these things in cancer too. But the other neat thing they're doing with cancer is it used to be you have breast cancer, you have lung cancer, you have colon cancer. And so the treatments were based on what works for colon cancer, what works for lung cancer. Now what we're doing is we're identifying, okay, which signals are abnormal. And so you might have colon cancer that's positive for a protein called KIT. And I might have lung cancer that's positive for a protein called KIT. You and I might get the same chemotherapy, but then Czar might be KIT negative, but then FLIT positive for his leukemia. And so he would get an anti-FLIT drug while we're getting the anti-KIT drug. And so it doesn't matter what kind of cancer we have, we're beginning to do trials where it's like, where we're taking all comers with a KIT positive trial, you know, people who failed other therapies, and it's, these are all early stage studies, but we're doing an all-comer study. Everyone whose cancer is KIT positive will do a KIT inhibitor or we'll do a FLIT inhibitor and see what happens. And they're trying to design therapy strategies based on what, what signals are upregulated and downregulated as opposed to what the cell of origin is for that tumor. Yeah, I mean, I'm it, driving down the cost question, but... No, but it's fascinating nonetheless. I mean, like I said, I've seen, you know, family members, you know, pass away from cancer, you know, 30 years ago. And... Yeah, it was it was it was horrific. Just just it's almost like you wondered if the cure was worse than the disease. Yeah, you know, and it's like now, you know, my mother-in-law takes these this medication, and it's no worse than taking a Tylenol. There's yeah. no side effects. You know, I told her the worst side effects she would get maybe she get a hot flash because you know the hormonal-based you know solutions. But it, it, it again, it, it frustrates me when you hear people in this country. This whole healthcare to make plain that there's no healthcare, and again, I people I think convolute the fact healthcare and insurance are two separate things. And like I said, they 
you hear these people talking, it's almost like you're, you're describing our healthcare system like some third world, you know, Ebola clinic. And it's just, it's just not that, that way. And I think that's, it's, it's frustrating to hear these conversations. And again, it's that sense of entitlement. Everybody wants the gold-plated treatment. You know, everybody has that access. Whether you can afford it or not is another story. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing. And again, nobody's going to have equal outcomes. It's no different like you just said for the cancer treatment. You and I may have the same exact cancer. You may get the same exact treatment. But there's just something different in my DNA or my genetic makeup that's different from yours where I don't respond to the treatment and you do. You know, it's not that you, were, you, you paid more money for the treatment and got better medical care. It's just that, hey, you know what? I'm genetically predisposed to get this and this is, this is, it is what it is. You know, so I, I think, again, I, I blame, you know, I blame a lack of science knowledge for a lot of people in this country. And I also blame the fact that the press doesn't understand. And again, everybody's pushing an agenda that, again, healthcare is a different thing than insurance. There's a reason why people from Canada come here to elective surgery. There's people, you know, that, you know, they call it, um, not surgical tourism, but medical tourism. You know, they, they come here to get procedures that can't get done in their countries because the healthcare is better here. Is it accessible to everybody? Yes and no. It's accessible, but not affordable. And I, and I, 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 I get that. I mean, it's expensive. And like I said, you've gone through eight years of medical school, plus your residency, plus advanced training. I'm not saying you should be making $15 an hour. You know, and again, I think it's unrealistic. But at the same time, like you said, what's driving the cost up? It's just like you look at colleges. It's not that the professor's getting the money. It's the fact that you've got 16 different diversity deans. You've got 16 different, you know, whatever. Like I said, layers of administration that drive those costs up. And at what point can you get rid of those costs? Is it simply getting the government uninvolved? Because you're never going to get them out of it. Once, you know, they get the tentacles in, they're not going to unregulate the, the industry. So, I mean, that's, that's what's frustrating. Yeah. In 1965... The wolf put its nose in the door with Medicare. Yep. Once that happened, they became the biggest payer, and they started really making a lot of the rules. And you're right. I mean, it's one of those situations where, you know, the more and more regulations and the more and more laws increase the cost. We are swapping out our electronic medical record system this year and moving to Epic because our, excuse me, our outstanding homegrown electronic medical record system doesn't meet the requirements of the high-tech law. So there are basically two major players in the EMR, um, Epic Hyperspace, and then I don't know the other one. And we're moving to Epic. And the nice thing about Epic is my friends at Penn who are on Epic, we can swap, we can swap patient files pretty easily. Um, I, have a, I have a nationwide referral base for one of the diseases I specialize in. And so people come all across the country to my institution to see me and my partners for a couple of specific diseases. And as a consequence, you know, they have records in Epic that they'll be able to more readily transport, transport to me so that I can just open their file up in my, on the computer right there with them and find what I'm looking for. And once I find what I'm looking for, that moves a lot quicker and we don't have to worry about faxing, you know, 500 pages of records um, because the same interface I use is the same one they use in Seattle or they use in New York or they use in Alabama. And, um, you know, but all that costs money. It costs a ton of money. The high-tech law costs a ton of money to make us compliant with, like, meaningful use step one and step two and step three. Um, and, you know, all of that drags down what we can do for our patients. And that can be really, really frustrating, too. So... One of the other things I, w I wanted to, to kind of touch on a little bit, you know, talking about healthcare in general, 
is the facilities now are so much different than they were, you know, when I was, you know, we were 20, 10, 20 years ago, even. I remember when my wife had her baby, you know, had my son, you know, we went to the hospital. It's a beautiful hospital, you know, top of the line, great care, what have you, you know, but at the same time it was, you know, you had to share a room potentially, or, you know, it, there were no private rooms. Now at the evidence of HIPAA, you know, this was an outpaced procedure. And it was interesting because when we were getting ready to go, they, they, they called beforehand to tell you, this is what time you need to report to the hospital, this is what you need to bring with you. And they had said, you can only have two visitors with you. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I remember last time, years ago, I mean, the waiting room was huge. I wonder why they're only limiting you to two visitors. Well, the reason is they built this beautiful outpatient surgical center. And when you go into it, you go into the room with the patient and you're in the room and there's a chair there. They, they sit the patient down in there. You sit there and that's where you wait. So you're basically in that recovery. It's the pre-admission room and it's also the recovery room and they bring the patient back. But you're seeing that they have in those private rooms. You're seeing a lot more, I don't want to say focused healthcare in the sense that, like I said, it seems more focused to you because you're by yourself in the room. You know, you're not in there and somebody comes in and you're discussing the other guy's health issues in the bed next to you or whatever it is. And again, it's, it's fascinating to see these hospitals. Now you walk into a lot of them. It's almost like I've seen less opulent, you know, resorts that you've gone into. You know, some of these, but, but I get it. It's, it's a, it's a well-being issue. It's a sense that you're not walking into some septic sanitary facility where it's cold, it's uncaring. It gives it a little bit more warmth and a little more, well, I guess, well, a sense of well-being. Again, take some of the stress out of it, I believe. But it, again, you wonder how much of that is driving up the cost of healthcare. Because where I live, they just built a brand new hospital. They had their existing facility. And the irony is, I'm dead. Where the hospital was before is eight minutes away. They built a new one, it's eight minutes away, just in the opposite direction. But they built this hospital, it's, it's gorgeous. And the irony is, they're actually a client of my company. We do all their networking for them, all the computer switching and everything else. But that was a $500 million hospital that now all of a sudden, well, guess what? Now we're in some financial trouble because the market you know, crashed. Uh, everything started to go down, you know, as far as real estate and everything else. And now they're stuck with that. You know, it's a great facility and people are starting to question, why did you leave the band of the other facility? It wasn't that, I mean, it was an older facility, but why not have renovated that? And again, I think people see those kinds of things and they think, well, this is the reason why I'm paying, you know, $20,000 for two hours of surgery. You know, there's that perception out there. I think that there's a waste and there's, Aside from just the overhead, because the problem is nobody sees the overhead. People see the beautiful, you know, three-story lobby with the you know, Starbucks and the, the, the concierge and everything else that's in there now, not realizing that it's for the patient's convenience, it's for that comfort. But again, that's that perception that, well, this is where all my money's going, you know, as opposed to it's going to the, you know, the MRI that's sitting in the back or it's going to the high-tech, you know, uh, what's that robotic surgical device you got? Um, I forget what the name of it is, but those kinds of things, you know, so it's just, it's just interesting, right? What your take would be on that. Yeah. The facilities arms race that you're talking about. Uh, yes. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, from our perspective, the purpose that's behind it is to get patients to our hospital. One of the big, biggest complaints that we had was that the hospital across town is much prettier that, you know, they have private rooms and we have too many, double rooms, they have uh, better food, they have, they treat, they treat you like you're at a luxury resort. Um, and they're just, you know, our facilities, you know, a couple of our wings look like Beirut, you know, or where they were upgrading the Cybermen or something. I mean, it's just one of those, um, you know, kind of not aesthetically pleasing places. So 
you know, we worked to upgrade our facilities to make sure that they look nice. We built a critical care tower that is utterly gorgeous. Um, it doesn't feel like an ICU. I mean, I have patients in the intensive care unit and I was like, this doesn't look like an intensive care unit. This looks like a spa, although the patient's on a ventilator. But other than that, I mean, it looks like a first class, high end, you know, concierge level patient room. And, um, but you know, these, these roomy rooms are good because the patient's partner, spouse, uh, children, you know, adult children may spend the night while they're in the hospital. Because one of the things that we're also doing is we're allowing family members to stay with the patients. And it, you know, it's actually better for the patients and better for the family members that they feel like they're present and participating in the care as opposed to being a complete black box to them. When we had stricter visiting hours where you could only come for two hours twice a day, did that make it easier for me to do my job? Absolutely. But it's better for patients and better for family members when they feel like they're kind of there, they're able to stay there with their loved ones. And, you know, these really nice facilities kind of are a testament to that. And while you're beguiled by all of the beauty and all of the, you know, opulence, you know, they're doing a background check on you when you check in um, that you may not realize for the children's hospital to make sure that you're not some serial killer, but you're, you're actually there for your daughter's appointment and, you know, you, you are who you say you are, which I was really impressed by when I found out on the back end that that's why, you know, when they looked at my, took my driver's license, I mean, they were just making sure that, you know, I wasn't on, you know, FBI's 10 most wanted list or I was, but I had an appointment, so it was okay. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate the level of security. I remember, again, like I'm, when we had our son, I'm sure it was the same thing when you had your children. And we, we had the, the wristband that was coded, you know, to all three. And when you walked in the room, they would, you know, check and you had to chime and make sure that was the right baby that goes to you. And like I said, you couldn't get out of that wing unless the security guard let you out and you had to present your badge to get in and out. So I, I appreciate that. And like I said, nobody wants to get well in something that looks dingy and a dump and, and doesn't give you that warm feeling, like you said. So one of the other things I wanted to ask and talk about is it's interesting now, like I said, the advent of a lot of the outpatient surgery, that whole idea of not keeping people in the hospital. I mean, and, 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 how, and how, much, how much leeway does, do you have as a doctor to come back and say, look, I know you usually say it's, it's only a four-day stay for this procedure, but, you know, we need him to stay an extra day or, you know, how much power do you have to modify those rules? I'm just curious. I have the ultimate power in the galaxy. All right, excellent. I got a four, trillion, four quadrillion dollar space station I can blow up the insurance company's planet with. Excellent. Um, the truth is that discharges are sooner and day surgery is day surgery because ultimately it is better for the patient. If it wasn't better for the patients, the patients would be readmitted and the insurance company be on the hook. Okay. So they've done the math. They're better at math than you or I. Uh, and they figured out that, you know, there's a certain threshold where, okay, risk benefit favors three days, you know, for, for a typical patient. And, you know, Honestly, if the length of stay is longer than that, the likelihood of a nosocomial infection because some med student forgot to wash their hands or whatever, you know, you know, just stuff in the air. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty nasty in hospitals, the amount of germs that we, we walk around with, even with our most fastidious hand-washing efforts and being very careful. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of sick people in the hospital, and you're going from sick person's room to sick person's room. Uh, so 
anything we can do to minimize, safely minimize length of stay is really in the patient's best interest. Now, the question of extending someone who gets sick, the, the biggest issue is documentation. And I mean, as long as it's reasonable and as long as it's justifiable, we really don't get much pushback. It's the hardest situations are with what's going on and you don't know it and you can't figure it out. Um, no, I, I get it. So I, I think we're coming up on the hour. So I'll just leave you with a little anecdote. You'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this story. So when my wife and I were having our, our son, you know, she was scheduled for normal labor and delivery. Well, when they started to induce the contractions, she noticed the doctors noticed that the heart rate was dropping for the baby. So they came back and said, well, there's good news. She says, you're having a baby a lot sooner than you thought you were. The bad news is we've got an you know, emergency C-section. So not, not being in the medical field myself, you know, they tell me, you're going to suit up and we're going to you know, have you put everything on and you'll sit next to the anesthesiologist and you'll be fine. How they tuck the collar into the bunny suit? It was tough. It was tough. Well, you know, I put the mask on and, you know, not re I don't want to cause an issue, like you said, an infection or anything else. So I strap that mask on. It's incredibly tight. So, you know, I'm sitting with the anesthesiologist, you know, my wife's head's here and I'm sitting next to the anesthesiologist and it's getting a little warm in the room, especially as we're starting to cauterize things, you're getting that smell of the cauterization. And I'm not a queasy person, but I start to bend over slightly, you know, that's because I'm getting warm. And the anesthesiologist says to me, he says, you're not going to go down on me, are you? And you know how it is when you're in that kind of nervous state? I turned to him without missing the beat. And I said, I don't think I know you that well. <laughs> and that was the reaction of everybody in the operating room, except my, my wife's doctor, who was Chinese and English wasn't his first language. The nurses and everybody else are dying laughing. And he's like, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> the next morning when I ran into the anesthesiologist, he pulled me aside and said, that's the funniest thing anybody's ever said to me in the operating room. I said, well, I'm glad I made your day. That's great. Oh, but just goes to show you when you're under stress, sometimes that humor just comes out the wrong way. My wife wasn't very happy with it, but she's like, don't make them laugh or operate on me. Don't make them laugh. Actually, the levity helps. Absolutely helps. Um, we, I, I, try to, I try to keep a light atmosphere. Uh, you know, when we're doing, when we're doing our procedures, obviously not slapstick, but just, just no, keep it a little bit light to make everyone more relaxed as we're going. Cause uh, if they see that the procedure list is completely comfortable. They're going to be completely comfortable too. Excellent. Well, Hey, I appreciate you getting online, having the conversation tonight. Um, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. And Thank you for the rhubarb pie.